you would, go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel chapter 4. I will warn you that this again is a jumping off point, 1 Samuel 4. We are going to journey and skip through some of the writings of the prophet Samuel this morning. So put your seatbelt on as we journey through the Old Testament. My prayer is that God would teach us some important characteristics about what it means to be connected to the glory of God. You know, Christians will often say, you know, I want to glorify God. And, and what they're talking about is I want to draw attention to him. I want to take the spotlight off of me or off of something else. Put the spotlight on him because he is the star of the show, right? People will say, I want to glorify God. And that is a perfectly appropriate way to use the, 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 the word glory when we talk about glory. But this morning as we talk about the glory of God, we're not just talking about his, his praise or the fame of his name. In context of what we're talking about this morning, we're talking about God's glory in the context of the glorious power of God at work in our lives. And so that's what we want to look at. How do I get connected with that? Why is that important for my life? And so we're going to start 1 Samuel 4 this morning. In fact, uh, the, the name Samuel, literally translated from the Hebrew, means to hear from God. Shema is the word, Hebrew word for hear. And U would be of or from. And El is God. Shema El, to hear from God. And my prayer this morning is that we would hear from God. Let's pray. Father, we, we, we thank you for the time that we have here this morning. God, thank you for the word of God that you have, you have presented to us, God. You have gifted us with not just the living word, Father, and that would be enough, Jesus Christ. But on top of that, Father, you have given us the written word. Father, the word of God that is a record of all that has, or much of that has happened, Father, in history and, and how we got from creation to Christ. And Father, all the lessons that there are for us to understand about those things. And Lord, in your word, we understand what is right and what is wrong. Father, we understand who and what we should be as believers. Would you speak to us this morning, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we get ready to dive in to 1 Samuel 4 this morning, I want to get you up to speed at, at, on what is going on at this point in Scripture. And uh, there's a lot going on here. At this point in 1 Samuel 4, at this point in history, Israel is under the leadership of a man named Eli. Eli was a, was a prophet and a judge of Israel. This was this was the days before Israel had a king. You may remember the name Samuel, which we're, going, we're looking at 1 Samuel here. And you may know who Samuel is. Samuel was the prophet of God and later becomes a, a, a judge of Israel. And he is the one that will anoint the first king of Israel, King Saul. He will also anoint King David eventually, okay? And so... Samuel grew up under the leadership of another 
judge of Israel who was a high priest and his name was Eli. And so Eli is leading Israel at this point in time. But as we look at 1 Samuel 4, Eli is advanced in age. And because of his age, it's gotten more and more difficult for him to carry out the duties and the responsibilities of, as Israel's leader and, and the leader of Israel's government and the leader and the high priest of the faith. And so he has turned over many of his duties to his two sons. And so instead of serving as the mouthpiece of God to God's people, it's the son of, sons of Eli who is really calling the shots in Israel. It's the two sons of Eli who are doing much of the face-to-face -face interaction uh, between the ministry of Samuel, the ministry of God, and, and, and what is going on with God's people, both in the faith and in the government. And so it's the two sons of Eli who are giving advice and direction to the other leaders of Israel. And in 1 Samuel 4, we see that Israel has just suffered a devastating defeat on the battlefield at the hands of the Philistine army. And in 1 Samuel 4, where we pick up, they're preparing to go to battle uh, again against the Philistines in a place called Shiloh. Now, this is the Philistine army. And so just so we are all on the same page here, this is, these are the people that Goliath comes from. When David slays the giant Goliath, he was, he was a Philistine, and he was one of, he was the largest Philistine. He looked like a giant. But make no mistake, the Philistines as a people probably looked like giants next to the Jewish people. They were taller, they were stronger, they were well-trained. The Philistine army was a formidable and, and very intimidating adversary to go up against on the battlefield. And so the people of Israel just suffering this defeat, they are, they are scared of what is, what is going to uh, happen when they meet up with the Philistines at Shiloh. And so the sons of Eli decide uh, to do something. The sons of Eli have what they think is a brilliant plan. You see, the sons of Eli decide to take the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, into battle. You know, it, it reminds me a little bit of some of the things that we saw on television on Wednesday and on the internet as, as people began to storm in and riot into the Capitol building and many were carrying American flags and many were carrying patriotic symbols, some were carrying Christian flags, some were carrying flags that had the name Jesus on it. And let me tell you something, friends. Nothing about what happened, nothing about that riot about the people that went into the Capitol and were breaking things and hurting others. Nothing about that was American. Nothing about that was patriotic. And it sure was not Christian. Okay? People have died because of the reckless actions of those who were doing things their way instead of God's way. See, anybody can carry a flag, but the question is, what is in your heart? Because Jesus is in your heart, then, uh, then that's going to be evident in your life. You can carry a flag, but you shouldn't have to, okay? 
Israel had heard that the Philistine army was very fearful of the Ark of God. And just to be clear, we're talking about the Ark of the Covenant, okay? This is the Ark of the Covenant, not Noah's Ark, not the big boat. This is the Ark of the Covenant. The, the Ark of the Covenant is, uh, is a big wooden chest that's covered in gold. It has a lid on it, and inside of the Ark of the Covenant were the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments that Scripture tells us were written by the finger of God. It was a very holy thing. In fact, the Ark of the Covenant was kept in the tabernacle in the place called the Holy of Holies. It was the place where the high priest would go to, to worship God and to do business with God on the people's behalf. It was the place that was said to, be, uh, to, to have been filled with the very presence of God, the fullness of His glory. It was a holy and sacred thing kept in a holy and sacred place and because it was holy and sacred, God had given the people of Israel specific instructions about how to build it, how big it was to be built, where to keep it, how to take care of it, and when and how to move it. And so we see that uh, the, the sons of Eli, even though God had never given the sign that would have told them to move the ark, even though God did not tell them to move the ark, they took it into battle, hoping to intimidate the Philistine army in order that Israel would be able to defeat them because they were so captivated by their fear. Now, as a military strategy, that sounds good, but as a theological strategy, it was very, very bad. And I don't know, I don't know if they thought it was uh, just this whole thing about when to move the ark that God had said, I'll tell you when to move the ark. I don't know if they thought it was a technicality. I, I don't know if they reasoned that the ends would justify the means. But regardless of all of that, the sons of Eli take the ark into battle that day in Shiloh and 30,000 men died including both of the sons of Eli. And not only that, but the Ark of the Covenant is taken into captivity. It's captured by the enemy's army and is now in the enemy's camp. A messenger barely escapes the battlefield and runs to tell Eli the news of what has happened. And Eli is in shock. And in his shock, he falls over, it says, off of his porch, falls on his head, breaks his neck, and dies. And so the messenger decides to go now to the next of kin. And so he goes to, uh, to find the wife of one of the sons of Eli, and the wife is pregnant, and he shares the news with her. He says, your father-in-law is dead. Israel has been defeated. 30,000 men have lost your life, including your husband and his brother. Both of them have been killed. And the ark of God, the ark of God has been captured. Now, one thing you need to understand, we talk about the ark of God, is that the ark of God is the representation of the glory of God. To the people of God. You've got to understand this. 
The ark of God represents the glory of God to the people of God. And so when the messenger comes to share this news with Eli's daughter-in-law, we pick up here at 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 19, reading to verse 22. It says, Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and about to give birth. When she heard the news about the capture of God's ark and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband, she collapsed and gave birth because her labor pains came on her. And as she was dying, the woman taking care of her said, Don't be afraid. You've given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel referring to the capture of the ark of God and to the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. The glory has departed from Israel, she said, because the ark of God has been captured. She named the boy Ichabod. Ichabod means the glory of God has departed. That's what that name means. And because of the bad decisions of the sons of Eli, The fullness of the glory of God was now separated from God's people. You know, as we think about all the things we have witnessed this year, especially this last week, I think many American citizens, I see it on Facebook and, you know, whatever other social media outlets they they will allow you to post on, but I think a lot of people are looking around and kind of looking at the United States and maybe feeling a little Ichabod about it. You know, thinking, where is the glory of God in all of this? You know, I don't care what side you're on, what happened on Wednesday, that was Ichabod. The rioters, their actions, that was not driven by the glory of God. And maybe someone that is here this morning, just personally, If you were being gut level honest, whether you're here in the room or watching, listening online, maybe there's someone out there and the reality is is that when you look at your life, you feel a little Ichabod about it. Maybe you look at your life and and you see some areas in your life where you just being honest, you just say, man, the glory of God is not in this area of my life. Listen, as a nation, my prayer in the the days ahead is that God would identify the areas that we need to change so that we can be a a nation under God. And that starts right here. It starts right here with you and me. And so if you and I are going to get to a place where, where the power and the glory of God, where we're connected to God's glory, then we have to understand some things. And the first thing is on the screen already. It's this, it's that sin separates us from God's glory. It's sin that separates us from God's glory. It was the sin of the sons of Eli. Let's bring the ark and then it will go with us and save us. And then we see that the ark is captured. The glory of God has departed. It was it was the, the sons of Eli, it was their sin as they ignored God's clear instructions. They ignored the clear instructions of God of how and when to move the ark. And because they did that, it set off a chain of events that led to the death of many people. And it led to the ark of God being taken into captivity by the Philistine army. 
What we have to understand today is that and we think about how sin separates us from God's glory, we have to understand that we all have sin. We may not be the sons of Eli, but we all have sin. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No matter who you are, where you are today, all of us are sinners. And by default, which means that in our natural state, apart from Christ... The Bible tells us that we are separated from the fullness of the word of God and power of God in our lives. You say, well, I've seen God do some things. I've, I've heard of God doing miracles. Listen, you might see God work in power at some point in your life, okay? Uh, you, you might experience or witness God do something amazing, but even that which you see will not uh, you will not be able to experience God's glory in its fullness apart from a relationship with Christ. The thing we also have to understand is that sin affects us differently at different stages in our journey in life, in our journey with God. If you're a lost person, which means if you're a person that doesn't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're still in default mode of being a person for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what that means, what sin means to you is sin is what keeps you from having a right relationship with God. It keeps you out of heaven. It keeps you from being saved. It separates you from the family of God. It separates you from heaven. It is that barrier that is in between you and a reconciled relationship with God. That is what sin does to the lost person but you know safe people can sin too can't they and what sin becomes for a saved person it doesn't keep you out of heaven because Jesus when he died on the cross he paid for all of your sins your sins have been paid in full past present and future and when you put your faith in Christ the blood of Christ is applied to all the sins of your life and so sin doesn't keep you out of heaven anymore but what it will do is it will it will uh, distort and, uh, and, and, and mess up your relationship with God. It will disrupt that relationship. Friends, there's a God in heaven who loves you. He created you for a purpose. He wants to be with you. He has a reason for, for your, your being here. He sent a, his son to die for you. He is passionate about you. He wants you to be in heaven. And not only does he want you in heaven, but he has a plan for you right here. It all starts with a relationship with Christ. But while there is a God in heaven, there is an enemy of God at work in this world. And he has a plan and a purpose for you as well. The enemy's plan, number one, is to do anything and everything to prevent you from ever coming into connection with the glory of God. The enemy of God wants nothing more than to make sure that each and every person in this world, as many as he can deceive, that none of them would come into a right relationship with God. But even after you come into a right relationship with God, if, if he can't prevent you from becoming a child of God, then he will do whatever he can. He will do whatever possible to, uh, to, to, get, to make you to where you have a very dysfunctional relationship with your heavenly 
Father. He will do whatever he can to derail, distract, deceive, and disconnect you from the power of God. Listen, you might be saved in that instance, but the question is, uh, the question is, uh, is the fullness of God, the fullness of God's power evident in your life? If not, it might be because of sin or, or deceptions that have gotten in the way of your relationship. We have to understand that everybody has sin, and sin separates, from, separates us from God. But number two, we need to understand that God's glory is more important than the enemy's deceptions. God's glory is more powerful than the enemy's deceptions. And so flip over in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 5. And what, you, you, what you're going to see in 1 Samuel 5 is that after the Philistines had captured the ark, they took it back to one of their cities. And in one of these cities, they had a temple that they had built to their pagan demon god, and his name was Dagon. So they took the ark of God, the, the god of all creation, they put it in the temple with Dagon. And so... They, they thought that Dagon was a very powerful God. They thought Dagon was something worthy to worship and something worthy to live for, something to make sacrifices towards. They were not followers of the God of Israel because they had been deceived into thinking that were, there was something in this universe that was more powerful than the God of the Bible. So in an attempt to demean and discredit the God of Israel, they take the ark of God, the representation of the glory of God to the people of God, and they put it into the temple with the statue of Dagon that they had built. And see, Dagon's place in the temple is sort of, uh, uh, sort of front and center, like a king presiding over his court. And so they put the ark of the covenant most likely somewhere in front of the statue of Dagon in, in an attempt to almost say that the God of, uh, that, that this ark represents is a subject of the rule of this false god, Dagon. Well, they put the ark in there and then they, they, they shut the lights off. They really didn't shut the lights off because they didn't have light switches. But they closed the doors. They did whatever they do to close it down. They went on to, you know, went on home. They went to bed. They come in the next morning, and lo and behold, the statue of Dagon was there, but it wasn't in the same place. To their disbelief, it wasn't in the same spot, but instead the statue was moved from its place of presiding in the temple to falling on his face before the ark of God. Amen? Are you awake? Do you, you, you get that? Do you, you, you get the power that is in that? I don't know if that registers with you, but that is powerful. So the people of Philistine thought maybe it was a coincidence. Maybe the earth shook. You know, maybe, maybe something went wrong. And so they brought people in. They ho hoisted up old Dagon back again. They left the pagan temple again that day. They came back the second day in 1 Samuel 5, 4 says there was Dagon fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And it goes on to tell, tell us that both Dagon's head and the palms of his hands were broken off and lying on 
the threshold. There was Dagon, the deception of the enemy of God, the, the deception that the enemy had used to deceive the Philistines, the deception that the Philistines had put all of their trust in and all the things they were living for, and they'd come in, and that false god was in pieces before the glory of God. Friends, God wanted to make a statement that day. And as I read that, I'm reminded that God's glory is bigger than any deception of the enemy. It reminds me, friends, that no matter what deceives you in this life, you are never too far away for the glory of God. If you're breathing air, you're not too far away from God. You're not so far away that God could not reach you. God could not save you. You're not too far away from the power of God to, uh, to touch your life, to do something miraculous in your life. Listen, he loves you. He loves you. And his glory is more powerful than the enemy's deception. Number three, we need to understand this if we're going to connect to God's glory. We experience God's glory when we do things his way. We experience God's glory when we do things his way. In 1 Samuel chapter 6, we see that, uh, that God's glory falls upon the people of, of um, the Philistine people so powerfully uh, that it just completely scares them. It overwhelms them. Uh, they, they have no doubt that the God of Israel is a real and powerful God. And at any point in time, I want you to understand this, at any point in time, the people of, of uh, the Philistine people could have at any point in time repented of their sins and trusted in the God of the Bible. But that's not what they did when they were confronted with the glory of God. They did what a lot of other people do. When God's glory begins to interact in their life and they begin to feel conviction of the Holy Spirit or they begin to sense that some changes need to be made in their lives, they did what a lot of people do. They, they separated themselves from the glory of God. They ran from it. And well, in, in this case, what they do is they take the ark, they contact Israel and said, would y'all take this thing back? <laughs> you know, uh, it's given us fits over here. We can't handle this God. We don't know what to do with him. And so they decided to return the ark to the Israel army and they met up in a, in a field in a town called Beth Shemesh. And the men of Israel, whenever they received the ark, they were a little worried. They thought maybe these Philistines took stuff out of the ark. They, they, they began to think maybe they messed something up. And although God had clearly told them never, ever touch the ark, they decided, let's take a little look-see. And they began to try to open up the lid of the ark. And 70 men of Israel died that day at Beth Shemesh because they took matters into their own hands. And they disobeyed the clear commands of God. So the people of God become really overwhelmed with the glory and power of God. They become so overwhelmed with it that they decide to take the ark to the house of someone that is nearby, the house of a man named Abinadab. 
And for 70 years, the glory of God, the very representation of the glory of God to the people of God, was at Abinadab's house, just 10 miles away from the city of God and the people of God. 10 miles away for 70 years. Until a man comes on the scene who had a passion to reunite God's glory with God's people. He wanted to reunite the glory of God with the people of God. And he was so passionate about this that he was willing to do whatever it would take to make this happen. This man was Abinadab's little brother who had recently been inaugurated as king of Israel. His name was David. When he came to power as king, one of the first things David does is, is say, you know, we got to go get the ark. And so if you look uh, at 2 Samuel, now we have been in 1 Samuel, if you look at 2 Samuel 6, you'll notice that David takes a group of people to Abinadab's house to get the ark. And in 2 Samuel 6, 7, we see that, that they, 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 they go there, they go to get the ark. Uh, and so there it was for 70 years, the fullness of God, only 10 miles away from from God's people. It was really close. It was right there. It wasn't that far away. It really wasn't that far, hard to access. And, and yes, listen, in that 70-year time frame, God worked in the, in the lives of the people of Israel. God did things in, in the nation of Israel, but yet they were missing out on the fullness of his glory that was separated from, uh, from his people. And so David gets a gets a group of people, some of which are his cousins, and they take the ark, and they take the ark at Benadab's house. They put it on a cart. They set out to take it and return it. They want to take it to Jerusalem. And so they're on this journey. They don't get very far. I don't know if you've ever transported anything on a cart before, but you put something on a cart, and especially if it's heavy, you know, right there on the top, and you're pushing that cart, and think about this, they're not pushing it down a paved road, they're pushing it, you know, in fields and in gravel and with rocks and sticks and all this stuff, and what happens when you're pushing a cart with something heavy on top, it's top heavy, and it hits a snag, it snags somewhere, it hits a little hole, or it hits a dip in the ground, or hits a stick or a rock, what do you think happens? You know what happens, don't you? It'll stop, and the weight will shift, and it will begin, look like it might even tip over and fall off. And that is exactly what happens as David and, 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 uh, and his people are transporting the ark. And so, so they're pushing it, the cart snags, the ark begins to fall over. One of David's cousins named Uzzah says, I got it! And he got it, because he touched the ark. And when he touched the ark, he died. And I, I know some people say, man, that's, that's kind of mean. That, that, that seems mean. He's just trying to help. I mean, he had good intentions. That, that may be all be true, but God said, don't touch the ark. And in that moment, Uzzah, maybe just out of a natural reflex, trusted his own judgment more than he trusted God's. And so David's frustrated with God. He's afraid of God. He doesn't know what to do with God. And so they decide to take the ark. They are like, we can't handle the ark. This is too much for us. And so they take the ark to the house of another man called Obed-Edom. And it would stay in Obed-Edom's house for, uh, for a few months until David begins getting word that God has so greatly blessed 
the house of Obed-Edom. And God has, 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 has had an opportunity at this point, or David has had an opportunity to think about and pray about what went wrong, what they did wrong. And so he has this, this he's committed. He's like, we got to go get the ark. And so he gathers another group of people and he goes to get the ark. But this time when they went to get the ark, things didn't go so bad. In 2 Samuel 6.13, it says that when those carrying the ark of the Lord advanced six steps, they went six steps before they were so overcome with the desire to give glory to God that they had to set it down and do a sacrifice and have a worship meeting and praise God. Now think about this. When those carrying the ark, when those carrying the ark, I don't know if that's, if, if that's throwing a flag up to you like it did to me the first time I read that. I thought, well, well, hold on, wait a minute. If you're not supposed to touch the ark then how could they be carrying the ark? Now I want you to understand, this is so profound and so just amazing in its simplicity. <laughs> You're not supposed to touch the ark. Well, how are they carrying the ark? The answer is simple. They used the poles. They used the poles. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, let me explain to you what that means. In Exodus 25, when God gave instructions about building the ark and how to care for the ark, he gave instructions about how to transport the ark. And when they built the ark, they built these rings in the ark on the sides towards, uh, towards uh, on the sides of the ark, there were these golden rings, and inside those rings, there, you were supposed to take these big poles that God had told them how to make and slide it into those rings, and then people would get on each side, and they could carry the ark without having to touch the ark. You see, the difference, friends, is that they did it God's way. They stopped trying to do it their way, and they did it God's way. You see, when the ark got captured, it was because of the sins of the sons of Eli who decided to do things their way. When the, when the Philistines had possession of the ark, they put it in the temple of their false god Dagon because they decided to do it their way. And until this point, every time Israel goes to try to retrieve the ark from the Philistines and transport it back to where it's supposed to be, they did it their way. Every one of those times they used carts instead of using the poles. None of this would have ever happened if they would have done it God's way. Certainly from the time that the Philistines decided to return the ark to the people of God, none of the disastrous things that they went through would have happened in the 70 years of the separation from the fullness of God's glory in God's people, none of that would happen if they just would have used the poles. They did it God's way. And when we do things God's way, we experience the power of God's glory. And the last thing is this, God's glory causes us to worship. Okay, that goes back to the passage where we're saying that when they went and they went to retrieve the ark, they were so overcome with the glory of God that they could not help 
but to sit down and sit that thing down and begin to worship God. They could not help themselves. Friends, when God's power is at work in your life and you're connected to his glory and you're doing it his way and not your way, you can't help than to want to worship him and want to praise him and want to celebrate him. See, there was a party in Israel that day because the glory of God was reunited with the people of God. And then they took that ark. And then when they took the ark forward, they took it to Jerusalem. And now the glory of God is with the people of God in the city of God. And all is right in Israel at that moment. And God's power and glory will begin to work through the the reign of King David. Friends, when God's, when, when God's glory and power are working in our lives, there's nothing like it. Let me ask you this this morning. Number one, are you connected to the glory and power of God? Do you have access to that glory? Because the good news is that anyone can be connected to God's glory. That begins with coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Have you ever confessed that Jesus is your Savior because you truly believe it in your heart? If not, friends, you can do that today. Wherever you are, you don't even have to come forward, although I'd love for you to come forward. You can do that today. If I could do anything to help you, to help you navigate that or answer questions about that, let me know. But that's where it starts. I tell you, you know, as a believer in Christ, I am disturbed about what all has transpired in our nation in the past year and saddened by all the things that happened on Wednesday. And I'll just be honest with you, a part of me wants to react. Part of me wants to set everybody straight. <laughs> but I want to make sure, I want to make sure that whatever I say or whatever my response is, it is measured in the love and truth in God. And as a believer in Christ, I am prayerful that my actions and my responses to everything in life, not just what's happened this week, but everything in life, they would be pole responses and not cart responses. They would be responses of trying to do things God's way instead of trying to do things my way. And maybe that's not a factor for you. Maybe it's, there's something else out there that you need to evaluate. But if you're a believer in Christ, I want to ask you this question. What carts in life do you need to replace with poles? What are the things that you're doing your way that you need to start doing God's way? Let's pray.